Imagine That Studios, in association with Ace Books, presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 4, the official anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences. I must admit, this analytical engine of ours did survive the rebuild rather well, didn't it? Survived? Rally, it's actually running faster and far more efficiently than before. Are you implying it was sluggish back in London? Compared to our new surroundings here at White Rock? We're still underground. In a rather expansive wine cellar where it is cool and dry. It wouldn't surprise me at all if Lisa here didn't prefer the Hebden Bridge climate. Lisa? Who is Lisa? The name I gave this lovely device. Are you insinuating that Lisa that my analytical device is aware of its surroundings. Why not? It answers queries, organizes files, plays music on request. Command. And even makes a lovely spot of tea. And you think all that makes my mechanation aware? Treat a lady right, and she will endeavor to take care of you, Wellington. The Case of the Copper Condor by Lauren Harris Part 1 New Brighton, Pennsylvania, United States of America February 1868 The man standing before Agent Rosalind Kicklepenny was exceedingly calm, considering she'd caught him clutching a severed arm. It was a gruesome thing, stiff and blue, "'dripping not with blood, but with the chill water of the river "'from which she'd observed the gentleman, "'if one could call a person holding a disembodied limb such, "'pluck it with great dexterity and care. "'It was a mark of her experience as a ministry agent "'that, though raised in wealth "'and capable of summoning a theatrical feint when necessary, "'she neither screamed nor hesitated to level her weapon "'directly at his head.' She'd watched him doff his hat and coat, revealing a holster of glinting metal instruments whose functions she'd been unable to determine from a distance. It wasn't until he'd shuffled to the snowy edge of the water and drawn in a net holding the severed arm that she confirmed this man was indeed her quarry. Now he stared levelly back at her over the sights of her borrowed shotgun, his single eye barely daring to blink. The place where his other eyes should have been sported an eye patch. He dropped the pair of calipers and raised his hand in surrender. He did not, however, release the arm. I believe there's been a mistake, he said. No doubt, Rosalind responded, and watched his brow furrow at her patently un-American accent. Time will tell whether the mistake is yours or mine. She retrieved the badge from her skirt pocket with one hand, the other holding the shotgun barrel steady, as if she were waiting for birds to be flushed from the bush in her father's backyard. Her sister's now, she reminded herself. Or, more accurately, her brother-in-law's. She brandished the badge. The man's eyebrows lifted further, no doubt because he had never seen a woman of her heritage given any authority in the United States. 
In fact, no more than five years ago, she might have been a slave. Agent Rosalind Kecklepenny, with Her Majesty's Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, she announced. I am assisting local authorities in the hunt for a killer of the eight missing girls. Or is it nine now? The man stared back at her with his single eye and swallowed. He had a thin face, drawn with premature lines and badly in need of a shave, but with features that spoke of fine breeding, if Americans had such a thing. Had she met him on the streets of London, she might have thought him long at the bedside of a home call, with his medicine bag beside him. Madam, I wish to offer an explanation, he said. My name is Dr. Mordecai Shrike. I was a surgeon in the Union Army, and am currently employed in the study of anatomy, namely, of whether the freezing process provides a successful method for preserving limbs for reattachment. I'm hearing introduction, not explanation. A cry sounded from above, something like a whistle, and she took her eyes off him long enough to watch the glinting copper form of an enormous bird bank above their heads, before it swooped around and rotated its leathery wings, settling on the outcropping of a stone bridge, venting steam. It watched Mordecai, its oculars extending and shortening like a pair of spyglasses, as it focused on the man that she could only assume was its master. Instinct warred with desire. She wanted to stare at the creature, but training told her not to take her eyes from Mordecai. My partner will be alone shortly, she said, stowing the badge in her skirt pocket again. He'll be very interested in that automaton. It seems to be tracking you. Or I would assume so, since I followed it to you. She's mine, Mordecai said quickly. I created her. I study birds, you see. Part of my anatomical work. Interesting. You are aware, are you not, that the victims all had similar injuries? Punctures on the posterior and anterior of the shoulders, as if they were gripped by talons. One eye missing, both with traces of copper left in the wounds. Folks are saying it's a condor, one that hungers for virgin flesh. She drew back the shotgun's bolt, sealing in the cartridge with a satisfying clunk. Do you happen to know anything about that? Mordecai's response was to turn his head, brow furrowing as his gaze tracked over to a copper kettle. Rosalind hadn't noticed it until just then, but it was large enough to have carried an entire bushel of apples. A thin haze of condensation shone on the outside. If I could just... Mordecai said, stepping toward the kettle. Stay right where you are, Dr. Shrike, Rosalind said cross-stepping easily despite her fine petticoats and keeping her partner's gun trained on the doctor. Bending down, she used the edge of her velvet skirt to lift off the lid of the kettle. Snow? Yes, Mordecai said a little desperately. And you want to put that? She nodded at the limb. In here? Yes, he was getting impatient. Now why would you wish to do such a thing? She asked. I have to keep it on ice, or it will be useless. I need it to stay... He growled, free hand raking through his hair as he struggled to voice the explanation. Am I to understand that you must keep the limb at a low temperature in order for it to remain viable for reattachment? She supplied. Mordecai looked up, his gaze refocusing on her. She watched the transformation of his regard shift from frustration to something sharper, more direct. That is my working theory, yes, Agent 
Kecklepenny. Agent Kecklepenny. I implore you, please, for the sake of my research. He nodded at the kettle. Rosalind shook her head. Not until you answer a few more questions, Dr. Shrike. Where did you get that limb? From the river. And how, precisely, did you know it would be there? Mordecai had just opened his mouth to explain when a rustle sounded from the woods behind Rosalind. The enormous copper bird gave a cry, vented more steam, and launched itself into the air. Rosalind retrained her sights on it, just in case the automaton had been given the signal to claim her as its next victim. No, cried Mordecai. Don't harm her. Her? Rosalind glanced at Mordecai, rolling the word over in her head. Her. As if the automaton were alive, not some construct of copper, leather, and steam, given power and direction by the madman before her. It was strange, though, the way it had cried out and launched itself into the air, almost as if it had been startled. But that was impossible. Things that were not alive could not possibly be startled, and automatons were not alive, no matter how near a facsimile they were. Raz, a familiar voice called from the brush behind her, and from the forest burst her partner, or the best approximation the remote New England town of New Brighton could offer. Elliot Stoker Rowe was a man whose complexion put hers to utter shame. He was as dark-skinned as he was handsome, and to say he was one of the cleverest men she had ever met might not have been a matter of contest, if not for the next moment. Did you see it? It was... She never learned what Elliot thought the automaton was, however... For just then, his foot hit the slushy mud of the riverbank, and he slipped. The sprawl was a thing of spectacular grace, his long limbs spreading as if in flight as his feet slid forward. And then he fell back, splattering mud up onto the hem of her dress and destroying the image of graceful flight. Rosalind winced. Yes, Mr. Stoker Rowe, she sighed. I did see the bird. It's clockwork, as you expected. Steam-powered and highly complex. Dr. Shrike here claims he made it. She nodded to the doctor, who had taken advantage of her momentary distraction, to bid for the kettle. He did not pause in his action of stowing the limb inside, as if knowing she wouldn't shoot him for it. Not in cold blood. As Elliot climbed to his feet, Rosalind extended the shotgun to him, reaching instead for the modified double-barreled flintlock pistol through his belt. The grip was familiar, smooth first by her father's hand, then by her own. He'd used it during his captaincy in the Royal Navy, and when he passed, she took it up from the mantle and employed it once again in the protection of England, this time with a few modifications from the Ministry's clankertons. "'Is it firing again?' she asked in a conversational tone. "'It certainly is.' A little bit of condensation froze in the gears that operated the firing mechanism. I added a protected casing to the chamber to protect it from the steam cartridge. Cheers. Elliot's gaze, however, was following the shrinking silhouette of the bird over the wood in the far bank. It surely is a shame we could not catch it, he said. I would have liked to get a closer look. His dark gaze shifted to Mordecai, and he finally noticed the severed arm. His expression hardened, and he lifted the shotgun aiming straight for the doctor's head. Go ahead, Roz. 
I would like to see how this man enjoys manacles. Rosalind glanced uncomfortably at her partner, uncertain how to respond to the bitterness in his voice. The color of her skin often seemed to attract a sort of camaraderie she didn't feel, though not as often as it attracted the sort of disregard she didn't deserve. Still, she was the daughter of a Royal Navy captain and his Caribbean wife, and had enjoyed the sort of privilege that felt almost embarrassing when she considered the way those who shared her complexion were treated, both in England and the Americas. Elliot still bore the scars of his experiences, lash marks in his upper arms, which he assured her marked him down his strong back and legs. She swallowed the desire to respond, and simply drew the hammer on her gun, reaching into the pocket of her skirts for the manacles in her bustle. To his credit, the doctor didn't resist. Dr. Shrike, she said firmly, you are under arrest. The surgeon's residence was nearer to the town centre than Rosalind had anticipated. With Mordecai safely between them, she and Elliot allowed the man to direct them to a home far larger than she would have anticipated, given the relatively common status of the town at large. She glanced askance at him, wondering whether a colonial war surgeon could possibly have enough of a stipend to afford this home with its fine panelling and wrought iron trellis. The inside was another matter entirely. Though Mordecai had been reluctant to lead them to his home, his eyes kept straying to the copper kettle swinging in Elliot's grasp, and he complied with their requests. As he fumbled a large skeleton key from his coat, he seemed to regret the decision to bring them to his house. "'Come now, Dr. Shrike,' Rosalind said, giving his arm in her grasp a bit of a shake. If you truly are as innocent as you claim, you'll have nothing to hide. Mordecai swallowed. Still, he lifted a steady hand and slid the key into the lock with perfect precision. It barely rasped the sides of the passage before he twisted it and unbolted the door. Just the sort of deft manipulation she would have expected from a doctor. With Mordecai ahead of them, Rosalind and Elliot entered a darkened foyer, blinking their eyes to adjust to the dim light. What met them did not at all resemble what she imagined the original interior to be. Rather than a parlour and library, a sitting-room, or a kitchen, there was but a single sprawling hall open through the second floor. The windows of the second story were open, spilling angled shafts of light like spotlights around the room, illuminating the various occupants. A thousand skeletons from a thousand different birds hung in the aspect of flight or perched on metal branches that seemed to grow from what had once been wall sconces, twisting out into the stretching fingers of trees. The wall's dark grey silk was littered with chalk drawings and diagrams, as though a naughty and precocious child had traced out his musings on the parlour wall. There were drawings of humans, too, she recognized many of the Latin appellations from the anatomy books in her father's library. There seemed to be greatest concentration on the pericardial cavity and its contents, countless diagrams of hearts and veins, followed by designs with which she was decidedly less familiar, 
which involved cogs and equations she had never bothered much to learn. And there, along the western wall, before a set of great open windows, hung a cage. It was nearly six feet tall, and she imagined even the copper condor would be able to extend its wings most of the way within it. She blinked, her imagination supplying the sight of a young woman, stripped to the undergarments, curled up and sobbing in the cage, waiting to be killed and hacked to pieces. Elliot whispered, "'You're either a genius or a madman,' he said, stepping over to examine one of the equations more closely. "'I haven't ruled out both,' Rosalind said, certain to keep her pistol trained on Mordecai. "'Tell me how a former surgeon can afford to live in a house this size. "'As far as I'm aware, your stipend would not be means enough "'to allow you to stop practising, let alone create Dr. Frankenstein's laboratory.' "'I was a man of means even before the war,' Mordecai said, "'and his hands twisted in front of him. "'He was looking more and more nervous now, "'his single eye swivelling towards the door in the far wall. "'As he fiddled with a ring around his middle finger,' Rosalind noticed the image of a black bird on a silver field, which looked very much like a signet. That was, of course, absurd. Americans had no nobility to speak of, and therefore no need for signets. Mordecai noticed her looking and clenched his fist, covering the signet with his opposite hand. Of course, the war was not profitable for my family, he continued. All that was left after the war was me, and this house... I spent the rest of my money outfitting it with the tools I would need to pursue my study. Rosalind narrowed her eyes, monitoring the tick of his pulse just above his neckcloth, the rate of his blinking. He wasn't completely lying, but she trusted her eyes and her intuition, both of which told her he wasn't revealing the entire truth. His gaze darted between the cage and the door he'd glanced at before. Both would require further investigation. Before she could ask about them, Elliot interrupted with a question of his own. Is that an omnidirectional articulation joint? He asked, pointing to a schematic on the wall. Rosalind could have rolled her eyes. She was going to have to teach Elliot how to conduct a questioning properly. But Mordecai jerked upright, as if he hadn't been expecting this sort of question, from a man of Elliot's obvious slave origin. That's right, he said. It is the mechanical interpretation of an avian scapula. Elliot grinned and leaned closer to the drawing. I would never have thought to use pistons that way. Does it work? Obviously, Rosalind said. Or the beast wouldn't be able to kidnap and drink the blood of virgins. She isn't a killer, Mordecai said, rounding on Rosalind so fast she nearly drew her sidearm. A shock of adrenaline seared through her veins, but she breathed through it, consciously relaxing her muscles as her heart and lungs unclenched. Very well, Dr. Shrike. If the bird isn't our killer, who is? He was shaking in earnest now, though whether from fear or frustration she wasn't certain. I do not know. Rosalind nodded at Elliot, gesturing for him to watch the doctor while she searched the chamber. Ignoring the empty eye sockets of their thousand avian onlookers, she walked about the room, gazing at the workbenches, the generous tank of beetles which seemed to be slowly devouring a goat shank. She picked through the tools and vials, 
cast off scraps of metal and disused parts. Quite the tinkerer, aren't you, Dr. Shrike? It is how I fund my anatomical research, he said. I make things people need, and I receive funding to purchase specimens. Such as? Owls, eagles, sometimes more exotic birds. She nodded, pacing to a trough-like metal box in the back corner of the room. There was a strange chemical smell emanating from beneath its lid. She sucked in a breath, and when she lifted the lid, Rosalind was glad she had. What lay beneath was a strange sort of stew, topped off with an uneven film of sludge, like the scum the family cook scooped out of the pot when she boiled a chicken, only more viscous. Though she could spy no heat source, the liquid fizzled strangely, as if simmering. What's in here? She called back across the chamber. Elliot ushered Mordecai forward and, confronted with the mixture, the doctor appeared to turn slightly green, though that may have been a reflection of light. Uh, it is, um, a chemical solution intended on, on dissolving flesh from bone. It is how I isolate the skeletons of my birds. Mordecai cast a glance upwards as if praying. This time he really was lying. I assumed the scavenger beetles on your workbench were for that. The man's square jaw clenched, his lips tensing to pallor as the corners turned down. They are. I'm experimenting with a more convenient chemical process, one that does not require constant feeding. I see. Pray, how do I remove the current specimen? I imagine putting my hand into that solution would disagree with me. It may prove to test the integrity of your flesh, yes. I do not recommend removing the specimen, however. Oxygenation has an adverse effect- Ah, these tongs appear to be the ticket, she said, behaving as if she hadn't heard him. She located a set of very long, pincer-like tongs beside the bat, along with a pair of thick leather gloves. Rosalind donned the gloves and lifted the tongs. She clipped them a few times over the vat, drawing a grimace from the doctor. Any suggestions regarding the procedure? Don't. Elliot snorted. Agent Kecklepenny doesn't know that word. I highly suggest you refrain from compromising my specimen. Rosalind smiled. I hear your suggestion, Dr. Shrike. And upon proof of your innocence, I am certain compensation can be arranged. She plunged the tongs into the liquid, stirring up smells noxious enough to uncurl her hair as she rooted around for something solid. The metal dipped deeper until her gloved hand nearly brushed the floating scum, and she was able to grip the specimen. Whatever it was, however, did not feel quite so solid as bone. She concentrated, careful to draw the weight of it up slowly. Her arms were strong, Yet the specimen was far heavier than she'd expected, and when it finally broke the surface, her gut clenched. Strange fibers clung to the pitted, spongy surface gripped between the tongs, and the higher she drew the thing, the more obvious it became that the long, spongy, fiber-covered thing she was lifting was a bone surrounded by some remnant of flesh. Elliot took a step back, dragging Mordecai with him, as Rosalind heaved the dripping thing onto her workbench, dribbling the liquid onto the floor where it hissed and pitted the panelling. The workbench smoked slightly, 
But as she straightened the bone with the tongs, one arm now lifted to cover her mouth and nose with a lace-trimmed sleeve, Rosalind felt a sinking certainty in her gut, followed by a swell of triumph. It's a femur, she said. A human femur. Mordecai stuttered something incoherent before composing himself. It is a specimen only. I retrieved it just as I retrieved that one, he said, shackled hands gesturing to the kettle containing the arm. I bought it. Anatomical research. Then why did you lie about the bone? She asked. Clearly the integrity of this particular bone has been compromised. The bone? Mordecai shook his head. Now, now, you don't understand. No, I don't. I would be happy to discuss it further with you at the jailhouse. Elliot, take the arm and find a way to transport that. She nodded to the bone. To the surgery. Have Dr. Catchpole determine whether they belong to any of the victims. Come along, Dr. Shrike. I fancy a cup of tea. Rosalind led Mordecai through the streets of New Brighton, keeping one hand always on the grip of her pistol, the other firmly holding the back of his arm. They received no few strange looks, though most of the town's population had grown accustomed to the sight of a black woman in fine dress wielding authority. Few enough of them seemed to approve, though that hardly bothered Rosalind. She'd grown a skin thick as copper in her own right, and never let the opinions of others deter her. As they reached the end of the block where Dr. Mordecai's home was located, a shimmer in the sky drew her eyes upward. The condor dipped from beneath the low cloud cover, just long enough to circle above their heads and ascend again into the gauzy belly of the clouds. Now that Elliot had removed the distraction of the arm from the surgeon's view, he seemed subdued, though no more contrite than he had originally. Either he truly was innocent, or he truly believed his work to be above blame. Or, she conceded, there was a perfectly reasonable explanation he hadn't managed to work out past the shock and desperation of a still rather mad scientist. He had spared her a few glances of his own, and as they passed by the general store, she finally caught him looking. His pale cheeks colored slightly, but he nodded to her decolletage. Are you wealthy? he asked quite bluntly. That necklace is a fine piece. It looks very expensive. Rosalind sucked in a breath. These Americans were so very direct. No British gentleman would dare to inquire as to her position in society. She lifted her chin a notch and raised her eyebrows at him, affecting the same haughtiness she'd learned to perform at balls and court functions. It is a family heirloom, she said, though she had no doubt his interest led more to the clockwork mechanism on the front of it than anything else. Pausing briefly, she took her hand from the flintlock just long enough to depress the watch mechanism. The front of the timepiece let out a mechanical whir and opened in a smooth concert of gears, revealing a tiny clock with a gorgeously worked face of mother-of-pearl inlaid with onyx numbers. On the opposite side was a tiny painted portrait of her mother and father, painted before she was born. The Caribbean scene behind them was lovely, and though she had never seen her mother's country of origin, she thought something about the white beaches and cliffside homes felt familiar. The light of the sun, though trapped behind the snow clouds, glinted off the moving gold, and Mordecai gave a nod of appreciation. The pieces are very delicate. 
It took a very steady hand to work the mechanism into a small enough piece to suit a lady. I'm shocked you would refer to me as such, Rosalind said, closing the locket again and replacing her hand upon her flintlock. She tugged Mordecai into a walk. Most of the men I've met up here in your progressive north seem to view me as something of a second-class citizen. Do you refer to me as a lady in an attempt to flatter your way out of chains? I do not imagine I would have to tell you how poorly such a tactic would serve. I merely comment, Mordecai said, your clothing, your accessories, your sidearm, your diction and education. You are no common-class woman, even among the British. It seems obvious to me that your status is a lady, else they pay you agents of the ministry far better than we surgeons of the Union. The jailhouse had come into view, and Mordecai shrugged his shoulders as if throwing off the weight of his own anxiety. She had only just turned to him to make assurances of his safety until absolute proof could be acquired, when a sharp, loud whistle sounded above. Rosalind fell back a step, drawing her pistol and releasing Mordecai in one movement. But the force with which she was knocked to the ground left her momentarily stunned. Her shoulders throbbed, and something tore hard at the lace behind her neck. Come, Mordecai called, and the weight shoved off her back with a hiss of steam and the clicks of clockwork. Her fingers clenched in mud and snow as she pushed herself up in time to see Mordecai extending his shackled arms for the enormous condor to alight upon. Though no more than a meter tall, the weight of solid copper and water was heavy enough to stoop the surgeon under its weight. There was no way he would be able to run. Rosalind shoved herself to her feet and aimed her pistol directly at the condor's swiveling head. You'd best explain why your bird attacked me. Or by the queen, I will put it out of commission. No, no, Mordecai said. The necklace. I had you activate it. My bird, she is attracted to all that glitters, rather like a magpie. I thought if she saw something sparkle in our midst, she might come down to investigate. I told you she would return. I was only trying to get her down. Rosalind ran a hand down her damp and soiled dress, silently raging at the likely ruination of her best horsehair petticoat. If your beast puts one more cog out of line, I shall have Elliot disassemble it and use its parts to build a technologically advanced spit for fowl. Mordecai's lips turned up slightly. I shall endeavor to control her better. The bird had moved up his arm in a very falcon-like way, to perch precariously on one shoulder, where it seemed to weigh him down. Mordecai extended his manacled wrist to her. When they arrived at the jailhouse, Major Toggleburn was not there. That was something of a relief, as it would give Rosalind the opportunity to question her suspect alone. Mordecai didn't protest being put in a cell, nor did he argue when a petty officer took hold of the copper condor, and gingerly relocated it to a cabinet behind the Major's desk. Rosalind drew the chair from behind the desk, and as well as she was able with the mud-streaked dress and petticoat, sat upon it. Now, Dr. Shrike, shall we speak more plainly? Mordecai sank onto the padded bench on the other side of the iron bars, and fiddled with his cufflinks. I will answer whatever question I must to prove my innocence. I did not kill those girls. Very well. From whom do you receive the body parts, such as that you found in the river? Mordecai's stiff posture grew strained, and he swallowed before answering. I have a contact, a ferryman who works along the river. 
He offered to provide me with the parts I require. And the river is cold in the winter. It is an efficient transport for the parts. It keeps them viable. And what form of payment does this ferryman require? Mordecai gave a shrug. Mostly money. But he's aware that I am an accomplished tinkerer. Occasionally, he will examine my cast-offs for materials with which to repair his skiff. The metal, you see, is more than he can afford, and it does rust. Rosalind nodded, adding the ferryman to her list of suspects. Where does he acquire these parts? If I knew that, Mordecai said, a humorless laugh coloring his tone, I need not pay him. If the arm I received was of dubious origin... You will have to ask him about his source. I do not know. Rosalind reached behind her to the desk and retrieved a scrap of paper and a pen. And what might this ferryman's name be? Caron Oswald. His mooring is just north of the town border. Ask him to ferry you to the morgue, or the asylum, or wherever it is he goes. And how do I know this Caron Oswald is not the murderer? Rosalind asked. Mordecai shrugged. The parts he brings me are generally removed with a surgeon's saw. Too fine an instrument for an ordinary ferryman to carry, and too expertly done. He is a strange man, to be certain, but I do not think him likely to be a murderer. Rosalind folded the note and tucked it in her corset. Very well. Once Mr. Stoker Rowe has returned with the news of whether the parts belong to the victims... We will decide whether to pursue this avenue of investigation immediately. Immediately? Mordecai said, drawing a smile from Rosalind. Yes. If the body parts do not belong to any of our victims, it would not serve me well to pursue that as a lead. It is, however, still a matter of dubious legality and will need to be examined once the more pressing matter is resolved. Mordecai slumped against the wall and gazed up at the ceiling, sighing through his nose. The condor echoed the sound in a soft whistle of steam. Elliot did not arrive until Rosalind's fourth cup of tea had stopped steaming. It was difficult to find good tea in the colonies, let alone in such an out-of-the-way place as New Brighton, and Rosalind was all the gladder to have brought her own. The officers had stopped grumbling at the idea of having to make room for a lady's tea set in their one-room jail, and she had no doubt it was in large part due to her capabilities with her sidearm. That was not to say the men failed to challenge her authority at every turn. They merely did so behind her back, and out of earshot of her tinkering partner. Only the threat of a federal government snarling at their backs motivated them to follow her word at all. She thanked all the heavens her job of developing the American ministry lay mostly in New York, where at least a few reasonable souls were willing to take the advice of an experienced ministry agent. Elliot's face was set grim, hard and solid, as the riveted plates of a steam engine. Rosalind sat up from her reclined posture in the chair and set her tea upon the table. "'Good Lord, Elliot! You look as though you've seen a ghost!' "'There's been another murder,' Elliot said. "'She was brought to the surgery just as I was leaving, fresh, within a couple hours. "'I stabbed through, punctured shoulders, left leg missing from the knee down.' "'Rosalind glanced at the window. 
marking the time by the height of the moon over the forest beyond the city. She pressed her lips and looked through the bars to Mordecai, who had sat up straight. Well, Dr. Shrike, it appears as though you and your creation are innocent of the act. She glanced back at Elliot. What said Dr. Catchpole of the arm and the femur? Were they from our victims? The arm, most certainly. It fits right with the arm of Mary Fisher O'Malley. He couldn't say for certain about the femur, but it seems to be a match in length for Abigail Coggan. Ugh. There was a groan from the cell. Agent and Tinkerer turned in unison to see Mordecai leaning over his thighs, grasping his dark hair in both hands and pulling it at odd angles. Damn him! Damn him! He was growling. Damn the woodlouse! He looked up, and for the first time, his eye matched the rest of his seeming mad scientist persona. It fairly glowed with the heat of his emotion, whatever emotion that was. Agent Cacklepenny, you must believe me. I had no idea. Karen Oswald, you must ask him to take you to the source. And there, I wager, you will find your killer. What I've done is certainly not the most ethical means to pursue obtaining specimens. But you must understand that I have acted as I believe to be in the interest of the greater good. I never, I never intended... Peace, Dr. Shrike. Rosalind said. She looked at Elliot and then nodded to the door of the jailhouse. The two of them moved outside, where the crisp moonlight spilled down from a sky that had finally begun to clear of clouds. The lines of Elliot's face took on that light favorably, and as he moved close enough to whisper, Rosalind found her heart beating rather faster than she would have liked. Do you believe him? Elliot asked, his breath forming a ghost that hung in the air between them. I believe he is telling the truth as far as he understands it, she said, her own breath seeping into the place his had vacated, as if searching for the memory of it there. I'm not certain I believe he didn't know, or at least suspect, he was using the parts from those girls. Elliot nodded, but his brow furrowed. He was staring at her decolletage, much as Mordecai had. She held her breath as he lifted his hand, fingertips barely touching the skin of her clavicle. You'd better see to that, he muttered, and she became aware of a sting just beneath the pads of his fingers. Oh, it's nothing, she said. Dr. Shrike summoned his automaton, and it was rather enamoured of my locket. Instantly she regretted mentioning the automaton, for Elliot's gaze left her, refocusing beyond the door, as if he could see through it to the bird. I'd love to get a closer look, he said. She sighed. If you must... I suppose I could do with a fresh cup of tea. Rosalind brewed a second pot of tea and was just rummaging around for the tin of biscuits she'd spied earlier when Elliot stepped back from the automaton with a sigh. Whether the sigh was frustration, admiration, or some combination, Rosalind did not know and wished she were acquainted with the man well enough to tell. Pausing with her hand in the desk drawer, she lifted her eyebrows at the tinkerer. Thoughts, Mr. Stokerow? Elliot shook his head, glancing at the surgeon leaning so close against the bars, his face appeared to be pinched between them. There are parts of it I can explain, but whole systems whose purpose I've got no thoughts on. This, for example. He pointed to what looked like a small tank with a pressure gauge. A boiler, surely, Rosalind said, giving up her search for the biscuits. She set down her cup with a delicate clink and circumvented the desk. That was my first assumption, and while it does appear to serve that purpose, there is something more. Smell it. The bird shuffled its mechanical feet. 
moving a step sideways along the cabinet as Rosalind stepped toward it. Her hand went to her necklace, covering the sparkle of it as she leaned close, wary of the sharp copper beak. Elliot took the automaton's pin-feathers gently in his hands, and spread them with a soft set of hisses and clicks. Rosalind had to duck under his arm to lean close enough to the boiler to sniff. She had expected something sickly, possibly some acrid scent like the chemical he'd had in the vat. Instead, a familiar sweet scent met her nose. "'Sugar?' she said, turning to Mordecai. "'You're using sugar water in your boiler?' "'Yes,' the man said. "'Or molasses. When I can't get sugar.' Why? Elliot asked. I can't think of any mechanical advantage of adding sugar to the boiler. It would only gum up the workings. Mordecai snorted. <laughs> Your understanding is too primitive. Rosalind narrowed her eyes, a flash of irritation overcoming her. She reached into the bird's chest for the engine, which ticked and whirred with clockwork parts, interwoven with tubes that steamed in the chill air of the jail. Perhaps if you dismantled it, Elliot? You might be able to acquire a more sophisticated notion of how— No! Mordecai's harsh bark rang in the jailhouse room, causing both Elliot and Rosalind to jump. Her fingers went to the handle of her pistol instinctively. No. He repeated, quieter but no less forcefully. Don't turn her off. She is one of a kind. She could never be turned back on again. Why not? Rosalind asked. She's an automaton. Mordecai swallowed. It's going to be difficult to explain the complexity of the parts' relationships from here. I would be happy to explain, but I would need to be able to point to things. Rosalind felt her stomach sink, but Elliot's eyes were bright with interest. She was certain of her ability to keep the man himself under control, and the bird, for all its power before, seemed to be running low on sugar water. The amount of steam emanating from the hydraulics of its heart engine was wispy now, and it had stopped the occasional venting whistle cry. She gave Elliot a nod. Very well. But the manacles stay on. Mordecai frowned, but nodded, and Elliot unlocked the cell door, pulling it open enough for the surgeon to slip through, though he snagged his coat on the rough iron. Rosalind stood back a ways, reaching for her tea to keep herself from reaching for her pistol, which would look too much like a nervous habit. Elliot stayed back as well, to her surprise, and after a moment she realized he was observing Mordecai. Easy. The surgeon had approached the automaton Easy. with a soft, low string of soothing words. There you go. His manacled hands moving along the creature's head and wings, then down its body as if checking for injuries in a patient. Rosalind pressed her lips, understanding why Elliot was staying back. He was giving Mordecai a moment with his creation, watching the relationship between them. Unlike Elliot with his own inventions, which he treated as both tools and sources of pride, Mordecai seemed to think of his automaton as a living thing, a pet almost. After the bird had stopped shuffling under Mordecai's touch, Elliot approached. Rosalind hung back, sipping her tea as she watched the two inventors. Whether or not Mordecai was the murderer, she still did not trust his insistence regarding his lack of involvement. Perhaps he was simply providing the financial stimulation a more depraved man needed to kill. But she had the sense he'd figured out earlier than today that at least some of the parts he was using came from the recent murder victims. And that made him an accomplice. 
Elliot put a hand onto the open casing of the thoracic cavity. Does the sugar water have anything to do with that webbing? He asked. Rosalind lowered her teacup, squinting into the darkness to find what he was talking about. The engine piece had been her main concern before, so much so that she had failed to notice the tiny white fibers making cobweb-like shapes between the stable structures of the automaton's framework. Now, though, with Elliot's fingers stroking them as gently as he had her injury, she couldn't fail to notice the strangeness of them. Yes, Mordecai said. It helps to transmit signals from the information center to the relevant receivers. The sugar acts as a catalyst for the chemical reaction necessary to power them. Rosalind's body went cold. Several thoughts had collided all at once in her mind, transforming into a sort of revolted fascination that left her momentarily speechless. The use of the personal pronoun, the lifelike reactions of the automaton, the need for sugar, and the strange white fibers that she now recognized as being the same texture and pliancy as those odd strings clinging to the sponge-like femur she'd extracted from the chemical vat. The fact that the bird could not be turned back on once it had turned off, as if it were... Alive, she whispered, just as Elliot plucked at the fibers attached to the heart engine. The bird let out a shrieking high-pitched whistle and launched itself into the air, bowling Elliot over backwards. Rosalind gasped and stumbled backward, lifting her pistol at the same instant that the condor flared its wings and banked away from her. She swung to aim after it, but movement caught her eye just in time. She turned, slamming the side of the gun into Mordecai's head as he rushed her. He ducked, and the flintlock missed his temple, glancing off his head enough to set him off his path, but not enough to keep him from bowling into her, shoulder-checking her hard into the desk. Rosalind used her momentum, kicking her feet over her head, skirts and all, and rolling over her left shoulder onto the paper-strewn desk. She landed on her feet behind it, but as she stood to take aim, her skirts dragged the pot of piping hot tea from the desk and shattered it. She caught a scream in her throat, clenching her teeth against the pain of boiling liquid splattering over her ankles, and fired off a shot that perforated Mordecai's disappearing coattail and sunk into the doorframe. By that time, Elliot was on his feet again, burnished brass shotgun glimmering as he chugged back the slide and heaved himself after Mordecai. She scrambled around the desk after them, darting out the jailhouse and into the frigid street, slush kicking up as she ran, soothing the burns on her ankles. Mordecai had run, and that more than anything convinced her that he was aware of his guilt. If she had anything to say about it, he would be brought to justice for his part in the deaths of those girls, and brought to England to explain to the Ministry Clankertons exactly how he had managed to turn an automaton into a living, thinking creature. To be continued. Lauren Harris is the author of the Mill Road Academy Exorcists novella series and assistant editor of Orson Scott Card's Intergalactic Medicine Show. She is the co-creator of 2012's Parsec finalist Pendragon Variety, a genre writing podcast, which is now a network of associated writing podcasts and blogs, the Pendragon Variety Network. 
Her narration is available on Audible and various short fiction podcasts. Theme music composed and performed by Alex White. Find out more at thegearheart.com. For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, visit ministryofpeculiaroccurrences.com to order The Diamond Conspiracy. Now available everywhere in your favorite bookstores and online in print, digital, and audio. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales from the Archives. And Imagine That Studios, Ace Books production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank Thank you you for for listening. listening.